Okay, it looks like we are a bit smaller group today. And I appreciate uh, all of you who are coming, despite the um, <clears throat> unregular time. And uh, my apologies for not being able to take part to take part yesterday because of a, an important meeting. Actually, it was a meeting with the BBT trustees. <laughs> so, okay, let us begin. Today we're going to be reading through chapter 33 of the 10th Canto entitled The Rasa Dance. So let's begin with Mangala Charana. Oma Jnana Timadandasya Jnananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmai Shigurave Nama Please turn off all your microphones. Shri Chaitanya Manobhishtam Stapitam Yena Bhutale uh, I believe Divya Lila Mataji Shri Chaitanya Manobhishtam Stapitam Yena Bhutale Svayam Rupakadamahyam Dadati Svapadantikam Vandeham Shri Guru, Shri Yuttapada Kamalam, Shri Gurun Vaishnavangscha, Shri Rupam Sagrajatam, Sahagana Raganatang Vitam Tang Sajivam, Sadvaitam Savadutam, Parijana Sahitam, Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shri Radha Krishna Padan, Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakan Vitangscha Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prishtaya Bhutale Shimate Bhakti Vedanta Swamin Itinamine Namaste Sarasvate Deve Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Paschatyadeshatarine Vancha Kalpaturubhyascha Kripa Sindhubhya Evacha Patitanam Pavanevyo Vaishnavivyo Namo Nama He Krishna Karana Sindhu Dinabando Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute Tapta Kanchana Gorangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Rishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Haripriye Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita 
Gadadhara Shiva Sadi Gauravaktavinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare 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 Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Narayanam Namaskritya Naram Chaivanarottamam Deving Saraswatiṁ yāsaṁ tato jayamudīrāyen Nashta prayeshvavadreshu Nityam bhagavata sevaya Bhagavati uttama shloke Bhaktir bhavati naishtiki Srimat bhagavatam puranam amalam yat vaishnavanam priyam Yasmin Paramahangsyam ekamamalang jnanang parangiyate. Tatra jnana viraga bhakti sahitam naishkarmyam aviskritam tatshrinvan supatan vicharanaparo bhaktya vimutshen naraha. Hare Krishna, everyone. Welcome to our fifth session on the Panchanyaya, Rasa Panchanyaya, or Rasa Lila Panchanyaya, it's commonly called, in the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, verses 20, chapters 29 through 33. Today we're going to read through chapter 33, the final act in this five act drama, which is. The Rasalitha, and the title that we have from the BBT edition for this chapter is The Rasa Dance. But before we enter into this uh, grand finale of the drama, let's review uh, at least the previous chapter. The gopis were in great distress searching for Krishna, and Krishna reappears. His reappearance is described in rather simple terms. He simply appears, and he is dressed in yellow silk and wears uh, a very nice garland, Vajayanti garland, and so on. And he is smiling. And the gopis are so pleased. Uh, they, their anxiety has been, they've been relieved from their anxiety as they, we may say, reconnect with Krishna. They are physically touching his hand. His, uh, they're putting his hand on their shoulder. 
in various gentle ways, they're reconnecting with Krishna. One gopi is meditating, seeing Krishna, then having the form of Krishna enter in through her eyes to her heart, and so on. And then they have a, a short discussion, because there is, among the gopis, a lingering concern. And so they present uh, to Lord Krishna what Srila Jiva Goswami calls a riddle. A riddle is mm, when you are you're given a kind of puzzle in which you want to answer whatever it is that's uh, challenged to to be explained. So they make this riddle about, about friendship, about love, and by raising the question that, that they are, they're challenging Krishna that why did you leave us? What sort of mm, friendship, what sort of relationship were you showing us were you demonstrating by your disappearing which is it's interesting it's an interesting question from a standpoint of yeah what i believe nowadays is often called uh, either nonviolent communication or compassionate communication uh they're, the gopis are withholding judgment. They feel some anger that Krishna has left, left them with no mm, preparation, no explanation, just suddenly he's gone. But they're not going to judge him. They're first going to hear from him what is his explanation. And so they ask their question in a very general way. It's quite clever. They're asking in a very general sense, you know, what sort of uh, f friends are there? And they establish a kind of, uh, or they suggest a kind of typology of friendships, friend relationships relationships of genuine friendship and relationships of uh, superficial or false relationship. And this question then prompts Krishna to reply in such a way as to explain himself. And he concludes the chapter with a confession. Naparayeham niravadya samyajam svasadukritya vibhudayu shapiva. I cannot reciprocate the love that you have uh, for me because mm, you've given up everything for me. If, if we take this situation uh, from one perspective of 
morality, we could say that the gopis, when Krishna returns to them, the gopis are on what might be called the, the moral high ground. They're on the moral high ground. Why are they on the moral high ground? Because they have given up everything for Krishna. And that's been made clear in the first of the five chapters, in chapter 29. Uh, they have given up their social status, they've given up uh, their reputation, everything is out the door and they've burned their bridges be behind them, essentially. And then what does Krishna do? He just up and disappears. Now he reappears, but why did he disappear? And so the gopis um, deserve an explanation which they receive and which satisfies them because it's a very wonderful explanation. Namely, I, I have uh, kept myself from you for some time because this simply increases your the intensity of your love for me. Uh, but there is a problem, and the problem is your love for me is so intense now, I can't reciprocate. I fall short of the capacity to reciprocate. And we may understand uh, the rasa dance as Krishna's response, uh, I don't know if we can say his attempt, successful attempt, to fully reciprocate. It seems, as we will, as we will read, uh, that he, although he said he's unable to reciprocate, it seems like he is able, uh, because the gopis are thrilled uh, in the course of the rasa dance. Hmm. Okay, now, before we go into the, uh, the rasa dance itself, I was raising the question uh, at the end of our discussion day before yesterday about the different ways that the Lord appears in the Bhagavatam. What sort of circumstances can we identify any sort of pattern, perhaps, any common features of Krishna's appearing, whether he's appearing as Krishna or as Narayana or Vishnu, uh, because this is there are so many episodes hmm, when Krishna is appearing, uh, and so we may want to think about this a little bit now. In the Rasalila, Krishna is making a a reappearance um, to initiate the rasa dance, or to complete, we may want to say, the, the rasa dance. Yeah, so I wanted to ask if any of you wanted to comment on this question of Krishna's appearing in the Bhagavatam in other cases. Um, yes, Hema Gopi Devi. 
Hare Krishna Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Uh, I I noticed that when um, when sincere people take shelter of bona fide guru, then they then Krishna appears in their life, like oh. Narada, mm. and um, uh, in case of Narada, when when he was serving the Bhakti Vedantas, mm. and then he in, then Krishna appeared. In case of Dhruva Maharaj. He took shelter of Narada and followed the instructions, and then Krishna appeared. Mm. That when, when, when they, when you surrender to a spiritual master, then Krishna appears. Mm. Good, thank you. Yes, and we could certainly uh, find un- other examples. Narada especially seems to kind of show up. He's another like Krishna suddenly appears. Narada also suddenly appears, isn't it? Many times, <laughs> he just suddenly at the at the right time at the right place, and then Narada Muni appeared. <laughs> uh, let's see, is this Maharasa? Anand Gosandaras. Oh, today he is not there. Okay, you you have your hand up also. Generally, when we find demigods are in trouble. Mm. Or so that time Lord appears uh, in Swetadip, and also whenever uh, uh, some devotee is in trouble, like Gajendra, you find he calls for the Lord. Draupadi calls for the Lord, and Lord appears and gives supply the sari. Mm. So this way, when devotees are in great trouble or uh, demigods are in trouble, so generally you find uh, Lord appearing at that time. Very good. So that means the Lord is appearing in his function of protecting the devotees, right? Uh, uh, or delivering. So, paritranaya sadhunam vinashaya chaduskritam. Okay, thank you. Uh, Bhimala Prasad Ji. You already uh, mentioned that. It's, it's basic, the basic principle is this. Paritrana, mm. Sadhana, Vinasha, Shadrishkita. Yeah. That's a generally, and Dharma Sanstapna also. Mm. That's also. That also comes along with that. Yeah. So that's the general principle of appearance of Krishna. Okay. So, so you want to say that in the Bhagavatam, this uh, general principle is confirmed every time Krishna Yeah, appeared. every time. Yeah. Either okay. of these three or a combination of these three. Ah, there can be a combination of the three, yes. <laughs> because the Lord always accomplishes many things at once, isn't it? Yes, Maharaj. Multiple targets. Multiple, yes. He's also multitasking. He, the Lord is the original multitasker. Uh, and whereas when we try to multitask different things, it means that our concentration is divided, which means basically no concentration on anything. <laughs> it collapses. <laughs> it collapses. But when the Lord is multitasking, his concentration is full 100% on everything he's doing, right? Okay. Thank you. Narasinghanitai Prabhu. 
Hare Krishna Maharaj, Dandavat Manam Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Maharaj, uh, Lord Krishna suddenly appeared. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, approved that if devotee from their heart pray to Lord, Lord will appear and save them. Like example, uh, when Durvasarishi came, Pancha Pandava, when they was in exile, Mm-hmm. For uh, 10, 000, with 10,000 disciples for uh, uh, lunchtime prasadam. Mm-hmm. And Durbhada was praying, like crying to Lord Krishna. And Lord Krishna came and saved them. Ah, okay. Yes, okay. That's, of course, not specifically Bhagavatam. That's Mahabharata, but that's all right. That's fine. Um, in general, in the Mahabharata, Krishna is if we think of the Mahabharata as a kind of drama, then we might want to say Krishna most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time he's sort of in the background. He's on the sidelines. He's he's making short appearance and then he's back behind the curtains again. Um, he's pulling the strings from behind. Yeah. Um, so, in contrast, I think we want to say with the Bhagavatam, and most especially with uh, the Rasa Lila, uh, which we will see is also called Rasa Krida, the Rasa play, uh, Krishna comes right into the center of everything. He is the center of the mandala of the gopis. Yes, thank you. Um, Radha Madhava Dasi. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Uh, I just wanted to share this. Uh, how, like, you know, when Narada Muni curses Nalakvira and Manigriva, and he tells, um, Narada Muni tells them that they'll have a darshan of their Lord, and mm-hmm. then he gives the darshan. Because to keep up the words of this devotee, Krishna gives them the darshan. Ah, yes, uh, he is feeling obliged uh, to fulfill the promise, the words of his devotee, and therefore, in that case, um, he appears to Nalakuvara and Manigriva. Um, of course, I I've, was thinking about this recently because uh, the two trees were growing in uh, the courtyard of Nanda Maharaj, they would have been seeing Krishna all all the time in his childhood. Krishna and Balaram are playing in that same courtyard, and they're probably touching those trees frequently. Maybe we can imagine them playing hide-and-seek, you know, hiding behind the tree and swinging around the tree and playing in so many ways. So they would have they would have seen, they would have enjoyed in that way as well. So actually Nar the point is Narda was really giving them an amazing blessing uh, in the uh, in the form of an apparent curse. Okay, so yeah, like this uh, the Lord is appearing in so many ways to his devotees, 
fulfilling his function, which he declares in Bhagavad Gita. Um, but again, a special feature, I think, of the Rasalila here is how Krishna is appearing front and center of everything. He's really bringing himself to the center of, really he's making, with the Rasalila, he's really the center of not just the mandala of the gopis, but he's the center of the universe. Uh, but he's doing this after uh, tormenting the gopis by his absence. That we don't see anywhere else in the Bhagavatam. We see occasionally some hints like anticipations of the feelings of separation. An interesting example is um, Bharata Maharaj, as he is practicing yoga and becoming absorbed in caring for the baby deer, the fawn. When the fawn disappears into the forest, the emotions <laughs> that Bharat uh, show are kind of reflections or anticipations of the intense emotions that uh, the Brajabhasis and especially the gopis exhibit in the absence of Krishna. Um, and there are other examples in the Bhagavatam as well. Hmm. Okay, let's proceed then. And unless someone had a sort of leftover comment from yesterday, we can take that now. No, I guess we can go ahead. Um... Now, I think we still have some devotees who haven't read yet. Ananga Mohini Devi, would you like to read? Um, st starting verse 1, and let's say uh, through, let's just do 1 through 3 to begin. Sukadev Goswami said, when the cowherd girls heard the Supreme Personality of Godhead speak, these most charming words, they forgot their distress caused by separation from him. Touching his transcendental limbs, they felt all their desires fulfilled. There on the, the Yamuna's banks, Lord Govinda then began the pastime of the Rasa dance in the company of those jewels among women, the faithful gopis who joyfully linked their arms together. The festive dance commenced with the gopis arrayed in a circle. Lord Krishna expanded himself and entered between each pair of gopis. And as that master of mystic power placed his arms around their necks, each girl thought he was standing next to her alone. The demigods and their wives were overwhelmed with eagerness to witness the rasa dance, and they soon crowded the sky with their hundreds of celestial airplanes. Mm -hmm. Let's also, if you could uh, please read the purport to this verse number three. 
Srila Bilva Mangala Taku has written the following verse about the Rasa dance. Anganam Anganam Antara Madhava Madhavo Madhavam Madhavam Chantarain Nanga Naha Itam Akalpiti Pandale Madhyakaha Sanjago Venu Devaki Nanda Naha Lord Madhava was situated between each pair of gopis, and a gopi was situated between each pair of his manifestations. And Sri Krishna, the son of Devaki, also appeared in the middle of the circle, playing upon his flute and singing. Srila Vishwanath Charavati Thakur points out that the gopis, maddened by love, were unable to understand that Sri Krishna had expanded himself so he could personally dance with each of them. Each gopi saw one manifestation of Krishna. The demigods and their wives, however, could see all his different manifestations as they watched the rasa dance from the airplanes, and thus they were completely astonished. <laughs> okay, this last point I find very striking. Um, you know, we if we picture the scene... From the perspective of the gopis, they're each feeling that Krishna is dancing with me. Um, Krishna is dancing with me alone. And each of the gopis are thinking that same. <laughs> Which means that the gopis are, on the one side, they're directly with Krishna, and simultaneously, we might want to say they're in some kind of illusion. Hmm. What kind of illusion? Well, here we may want to invoke uh, the, the term yoga maya, right? Certainly not maha maya, but yoga maya, uh, which in the very beginning of chapter 29 uh, is mentioned that Lord Krishna invokes Yoga Maya to assist him in this pastime. And so it seems that here Yoga Maya is now acting uh, to facilitate in such a way that all of the gopis are feeling Krishna is with me alone. And here we may want to also consider the notion of Mamata. Uh, we know the word mama, it's simply the uh, possessive pronoun, first person singular, mine. So this is my land, this is my house, this is my family. And so we often hear uh, this phrase, aham mameti, which is aham mama iti. And the ET is functioning as quotation marks uh, for the expression I, mine, I, mine. One is material existence is characterized by this thought, I and mine. And then the abstract noun uh, form of mamata is, you could say, if we translate in English, would be mindness, the sense of being mine. And it turns out that mamata is 
an appropriate and indeed desirable sentiment for a devotee to have in relation to Krishna, in relation to the the Lord. Uh, On the one side, we understand the devotees want to share Krishna with everyone, and this is the this is the basis of uh, the spirit of preaching of mission to spread Krishna consciousness, and sort of paradoxically and simultaneously, the feeling is Krishna is mine, and this seems to be the feeling that the gopis have. Uh, in the dance, Krishna is mine. But what's happening at the same time, the demigods are there. They have their perspective from, we might want to say nowadays, they're in their drone airplanes (laughs) up in the sky, so they can look down from above Uh, from a distance, and from a distance, what do they see? Not one Krishna, not two Krishnas, but countless Krishnas together with the countless gopis. And uh, that, in one sense, suggests, excuse me, that the the demigods, with their their wives, it says, could uh, have a more full vision of what was happening. Well, yes and no. Uh, They were certainly not having the the feeling of intimacy that the gopis were having as they were dancing with Krishna. The demigods are watching from a distance. And in effect, as we read or hear this description, in a certain sense, we are being placed in in a similar position as the demigods. Um, We are permitted, we are allowed to see, so to say, uh, to witness what is happening, but we are witnessing from a certain distance, uh, a distance characterized by this awareness that Krishna is uh, appearing in countless forms. Okay, Um, who else has not yet read? Let's get everyone. You've all read? Okay. Bhimala Prasad Prabhu, if you could read uh, verses 4, 5, 6, and seven. Yes, Marat. Uh, <clears throat> Kettledrums then resounded in the sky while flowers rained down and the chief Kandarvas and their wives sang Lord Krishna's spotless glory. Uh, <clears throat> A tumultuous sound arose from the armlets, ankle bells, and waist bells of the gopis as they sported with their beloved Krishna in the circle of the Rasa dance. In the midst of the dancing gopis, Krishna appeared most brilliant like an exquisite sapphire in the midst of golden ornaments. Mm -hmm. 
As the gopis sang in praise of Krishna, their feet danced, their hand gestured, and their eyebrows moved with playful smiles. And with their braids and belts tied tight, their waists bending, their face perspiring, the garments on their breasts moving this way and that, and their earrings swinging on their cheeks. Lord Krishna's young consorts shone like streaks of lightning is a mass of cloud. Mm, okay. Um, so, there's quite some action going on. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, because the devas, the devatas are involved, kettle drums resounding in the sky, flowers raining down, Gandharvas and their wives singing. So this is, uh, this is a cosmic event. This is, this is big time uh, divine pastimes. And the Lord is, it seems he's involving everyone. All, everyone is involved. Everyone is um, enabled and allowed to to witness uh, on on the different levels of reality. And this is not a silent dance. It's making um, a huge sound. Um, and it seems that the gopis, you know, we heard, we read in the chapter 29 that, that the gopis, um, when they heard Krishna's flute, what happened? They, they dropped everything they were doing and they just ran to Krishna. But it seems that they had some of their, shall we say, equipment <laughs> for dancing uh, prepared and ready to take with them. They, <laughs> they had uh, the waist bells, the ankle bells, um, uh, and so on. I think it's interesting that there are waist bells, kinkini, um, one of my favorite Sanskrit words, kinkini, um, because it's an, I think it's an onomatopoeic word. Uh, the English word onomatopoeic is an adjective indicating something Mm, it's a word that uh, imitates the sound that it refers to. Uh, and so, kinkini, the sound, what is the sound of the ankle, uh, not the ankle, the, the waist belt? The sound is kinkini, kinkini, kinkini. <laughs> That's the idea. Uh, and it says here <clears throat> that there was a tumultuous sound. Um, yes, Shabda Tumula. I believe the word tumultuous, it must be a cognate of the word Tumula, 
Cognate means they are related historically. You can, and historical uh, linguistics expert would say, yes, there's a connection there. Like, um, like for example, they say the word yoga um, is related to the English word yoke. And, of course, not just in terms of the word, but also the meaning. A yoga is um, where two draught animals are yoked together uh, for pulling uh, a plow. So, similarly, a yoke, sorry, yoga is a yoking. And, in fact, historians, this is a little off the topic, but um, historians point out that in the early Vedic literature, the Rig Veda, and uh, I guess other Samhitas, the word yoga refers to yoking a horse to a chariot for war. So yoga is actually associated with military action. And kshema is the opposite. Kshema, yoga, kshema, vaham, yaham. Kshema, in its very early usage, is um, the time when you unstrap the horses and you know let them rest. Uh, and the war is over. Anyway, uluka uh, is, or tumula, sorry, not uluka. Tumula is tumultuous. So we're invited by these um, very uh, sensate kind of expressions to picture. Picture means visually, but also audially to, to get a, a sense of what is going on in the rasa dance. <clears throat> now, this verse number seven, uh, the meter, and I didn't have time to look up the name of this meter, but it's one of the longer ones. Suddenly, it's a jump from the Anushtup uh, verses, which will continue after this, but this longer meter Padanyasayabujavidudipi um, the sound of the verse is also inviting us to enter into the mood of what is happening. Here it's describing how the gopis are singing, they're dancing, they're gesturing with their hands, with their eyebrows moving. Everything is in motion. Uh, their braids and belts are tied tight, but it can also mean, according to Sridhar Swami, it's in the purport, that uh, they were loosened, um, 
face is perspiring, uh, their garments are moving, their earrings are swinging, and all of this is causing the gopis to appear like streaks of lightning in a mass of clouds. And of course, Krishna is the mass of clouds, the dark shama color of the cloud, and uh, the gopis are golden-colored lightning. Um, an interesting point in the purport here, Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur points out that the gopis were expert at exhibiting mudras, precise hand gestures that express feelings or convey meanings associated with the theme of a performance. Thus, sometimes Krishna and the gopis would artistically move their interlocking arms together, and sometimes they would separate arms and exhibit mudras to act out the meaning of the songs they were singing. Um, something we'll come back to next week I hope to come back to is some of the more detailed description of the Rasalila given by Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami in his uh, Govinda Lilamrita he uh, he does some very interesting description including through the Sanskrit language, he gives us an idea of the rhythms of what they were um, striking with their feet. Uh, yeah, anyway, we'll see some of that and hear some of that. <clears throat> okay, verses 8 through... Let's go through 12. Who wants to read? Hey, Magopi. Hey, Magopi, are, are you wanting to read? Sorry, Marj, I had put my hand up for a question. Oh, okay. Uh, that Let's wait with the question for now. And um, Ananda Prabhu, did you want to read? I also raised for question. I can read also, but uh, I raised for the question. Oh, okay. Go ahead and read, and we'll see. It, eager to enjoy conjugal love, their throats colored with various pigments, the gopis sang loudly and danced. They were overjoyed by Krishna's touch, and they sang songs that filled the entire universe. One gopi, joining Lord Mukunda in his singing, sang pure melodious tones that rose harmoniously above his. Krishna was pleased and showed great appreciation for her performance, saying, Excellent! Excellent! Hmm. Then another gopi repeated the same melody, but in a special metrical pattern, and Krishna praised her also. When one gopi grew tired from the rasa dance, she turned to Krishna, standing at her side holding a baton and grasped his shoulder with her arm. The dancing had loosened her bracelets and the flowers in her hair. Upon the shoulder of one gopi, Krishna placed his arm 
whose natural blue lotus fragrance was mixed with that of the sandalwood pulp, anointing it. As the gopi realized that fragrance, her bodily hair stood on end in jubilation, and she kissed his arm. Next to Krishna's cheek, one gopi put her own, beautified by the effulgence of her earrings, which glittered as she danced. Krishna then carefully gave her the betel nut he was chewing. Uh, the the betel nut motif. Uh, this came also in the previous chapter, wasn't it? Um, there seems to be a, a certain symbolism there. I'm not so familiar, but the sharing of the betel is uh, an especially intimate, um, intimate function. Um, I I personally don't know how betel tastes. But it seems to be very attractive because you see a lot of a lot of people in Braj, um, well, in India in general, they take um, betel nut. It's apparently mildly intoxicating. Yeah, um, but I think it's also it's I don't know. I always associated except. Except with Krishna, I always associate it with a, a certain low-classness. People who are chewing betel, they strike me as kind of uh, kind of low-class. Obviously, that doesn't apply to Krishna. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, Ananda... I forget, is it Ananda Gopal? Sorry? Ananda Gorsundar. Yes, Ananda Gorsundar. Your question. Uh, Maharaj, I couldn't understand that. Uh, I had two questions. One is regarding what you explained the yoga. Because Maharaj, yoga, you are talking about some Sanskrit served yoga. Because yoga we know as an English word. And uh, yoga is a Sanskrit word. Or is it that now this Sanskrit word is taken in English? So I couldn't understand that connection which you were explaining. Yeah, there's an English word, yoke, Y-O-K-E, yoke, um, and that is the name of this um, device which spans across to, you know, oxen. That's called a yoke. That's all, and um, it's understood to be what's called cognate, which means it's related historically uh, to the word yoga. But also, I find interesting that um, they point out a connection between the word yoga and the word religion. Um, religion comes from religio, uh, a Latin word, and then religio can be taken from two sources, re-legare, I think, and re-leg, I forget, re-legare, I don't remember. But anyway, they find some connections there with, with, the, with yoga. So I like to say, um, some people, they don't like anything to do with religion nowadays. 
So I say, don't worry about it. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about yoga. Um, <laughs> and then there's no problem. Okay. Uh, one more question is, uh, can I ask one more question? Okay. Uh, regarding meters, generally, even like one verse, we sometimes sing in different, different meters. So when like, uh, so are there some standard patterns in which generally we recite the verses or is there some literature which can, which tells about some standard patterns? Like we know Anushtup Chanda, etc. But mm -hmm. the way we recite in a phonetics means in the verbal way, is there any standard meter for that given in the scriptures? Well, the meter specifically is determined by um, by the long and short of the syllables. And the rules for whether a syllable in a verse is long or short are actually quite simple. Uh, we won't go into that now, but there's only, what, three, four, five basic rules. And most of them are quite obvious. Um, uh, but um, that is quite strictly dictating the, the rhythm of a verse. Now, whether you use this melody or that melody, that's another thing. And there can be any number of melodies for, uh, for singing, for chanting, um, yeah, all the different meters of verse. I was told by one, uh, one pundit from South India that the Purusha Sukta uh, of the Rig Veda can be chanted in 16 different ways. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask him if he could demonstrate, but there wasn't time. <laughs> uh, okay. Bhimala Prasad, do you have a comment or a question, or should we continue reading? Well, I had the question pending, actually. Uh -huh. The first section, okay. I raised my hand, yeah. and I ended up getting trapped to read the five verses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, my, the question was, uh, in, in verse number three, it is very clear, even from the translation of the verse, mm -hmm. And then in the commentary, Bilva Mangal Thakur is citing the same thing mm. that Krishna was like, it, he was like, that, that means because it is a circle, and in the circle, it's like Krishna is interspersed between two gopis. Mm. And there's one, and there's another Krishna who is in the center of the circle also, the pivot, the pivot kind of. Yeah. So, as I understand, so then, so there are in any case two Krishnas. So, how is it that the gopis are seeing only one Krishna? <laughs> I mean, like they're blinded by yoga maya, or how is it like they can see in the front of their eyes center one Krishna, uh -huh. two Krishnas to their sides, hmm. and uh, like which Krishna are they turning towards? I mean, you know, like so it's I mean, t in one way, okay, fine, it is all divine, mm -hmm. and let it let let it remain like that. Yeah, but if there is another. I, I, I don't know if there's some technical explanation of that, but my my sense is uh, this is all part of yoga mayas. 
um, cleverness. And, and we could, excuse me, we could say it's a combination of their cleverness, of her cleverness, and the gopis' complete, um, what, is, what would be the word, vivala. Uh, absorption. Absorption and confusion, you know. So from that perspective, we may say. Okay, let's proceed now with uh, 13, 14, 15, 16. Who wants to read? Uh, Jai Govinda. This much. Shall I read more? Jai Govinda will read. Verse number 13. Another gopi became fatigued as she danced and sang, the bells on her ankles and waist tingling. So she placed upon her breast the comforting lotus hand of Lord Achyuta, who was standing by her side. Verse number 14. Having attained as their intimate lover, Lord Achyuta, the exclusive concert of the goddess of fortune, the gopis enjoyed great pleasure. They sang his glories as he held their necks with his arms. Verse number 15. Enhancing the beauty of the gopis' faces, uh, enhancing the beauty of the gopis' faces were the lo lotus flowers behind their ears, the lags of hair decorating their cheeks and drops of perspiration. The reverberation of their omelet and ankle bells made a loud musical sound and their chaplets scattered. Thus, gopis danced with the Supreme Lord in the arena of the rasa dance as the swarms of bees sang in accompaniment. Hmm. Verse number 16. In this way, Lord Krishna, the original Lord Narayana, the master of goddess of fortune took pleasure in the company of the young woman of Raja by embracing them, caressing them, and glancing lovingly at them as he smiled his broad, playful smiles. It was just as if a child were playing with his own reflection. Ah, okay. So here we have another analogy. Yata Arbaka. Svapratibimba vibrama, uh, as if a child is playing with his own reflection. Now, this can be a topic of quite some discussion, but let's, uh, let's, I'll read uh, this short purport, which is quoting Shilavakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. He says, Lord Krishna alone is the supreme absolute truth. And his potencies are unlimited. All these potencies, taking personal forms, engage Lord Krishna in his pastimes. Just as the opulent manifestation of his one supreme transcendental potency manifests all the countless potencies of the Lord. So, in the rasa dance... Krishna manifests himself as many times as there are various potencies 
represented by the gopis. Everything is Krishna, but by his desire, his spiritual energy, yoga maya, manifests the gopis. When his internal potency, yoga maya, thus produces such pastimes for the enhancement of its transcendental emotions, it is just like a young boy playing with his own reflection. But since these pastimes are created by his spiritual potency, they are eternal and self-manifesting. Now, this idea of uh, the Lord being like a young boy playing with his reflection in a mirror uh, strikes me, it reminds me of a comment um, my theology professor in Oxford made once, or it was, a, it was a kind of question he raised, which I always found intriguing. He said, what is, what is it, what is greater to love someone who is completely other than yourself or to love someone who is, in essence, not different from yourself? You see the question? Uh, and so it seems that what's being emphasized in this case is the non-difference, that these are simply energies of Lord Krishna, they are expansions, they are his Swarupa Shakti, his Antaranga Shakti, his Ladini Shakti, um, and he is simply enjoying with them, uh, and this loving exchange is going on in this way. And we will see this is essentially an important aspect of the argument of why what Krishna is doing is morally, thoroughly legitimate, because after all, the gopis are just his own energies. But in terms of the question of, uh, of love, what constitutes uh, love? To love another, someone may argue that that is only that is real love if the other is really other. <laughs> huh? If you're bridging that difference by love, that we can say is love. If you're saying, well, these are one and the same ultimately or in essence or on whatever level you want to say it's about uh, a single a singularity, a single principle, then, hmm, is that love? And someone may come back and say, yes, that's where you find real love. That's the real thing, uh, because that is, um, yeah, when we speak of love, we, we're speaking about an energy of, of relationality between two persons who are... Uh, fundamentally related. Anyway, that's getting a little abstract. 
Um, but it's, I find, an intriguing question. Let's continue. We have, um, we're not quite halfway through, I think, um, the chapter. So, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Who wants to read? Please. Yes, Maharaj, can I read? Uh, no, he already, you can read next, but now okay. we have uh, Yugala Priti Devi. Verse 17. The yes. senses overwhelmed by the joy of having his physical association. The gopis could not prevent their hair, their dresses, and the clothes wore covering their breast from becoming disheveled. Their garlands and ornaments scattered. Who hero of the Kuru dynasty? 18. The wives of the demigods, observing Krishna's playful activities from their aeroplanes, were attracted and became agitated with lust. Indeed, even the moon and his entourage, the stars became astonished. 19. Exp expanding himself as many times as there were cowherd women to associate with the Supreme Lord, though self-satisfied, playfully enjoyed their company. Should I continue, Maharaj? Uh, yes, please go ahead with verse 20 and 21. 20. Seeing that the gopis were fatty from conjugal enjoyment, my dear king, merciful Krishna lovingly wiped their faces with his comforting hand. 21. The gopis honored their hero with smiling glances, sweetened by the beauty of their cheeks and the effulgence of their curly locks and glittering golden earrings. Overjoyed from the touch of his fingernails, they chanted the glories of his all-auspicious transcendental pastimes. Okay. <clears throat> so again, we, we have the involvement of uh, the entire universe. Uh, the, the moon and the stars are getting involved. Uh, let's see whose microphone is on. Okay. Um, again, we hear about the demigods and how they be they become emotionally involved. Uh, they feel some uh, some agitation uh, seeing the, seeing this scene, um, and also. We get description of what seems like an increasing degree of disorder um, with the gopis. The gopis are, um, you know, their hair is coming untied, uh, and their dress and their clothes is becoming loose. The garlands are scattering, the ornaments scattering, everything is, you know, the... Uh, the chaos, it, it's becoming transcendentally chaotic. I remember one, one uh, senior devotee used to say, I mean, this goes back to very early days of ISKCON, when they sometimes uh, would 
in festivals, devotees would get, at some point, kind of wild uh, with their kirtans. And I think especially in Australia, they used to have these gulab jamun eating contests. Who can eat the most gulab jamuns? And, uh, you know, they get intoxicated on gulab jamuns. And also throwing gulab jamuns and catching in the mouth. So one devotee said, a festival is not successful unless it ends, uh, unless it culminates in complete pandemonium. Pandemonium means like everyone goes, everyone goes mad. <laughs> and unless everyone goes completely mad at the end, then it wasn't really a successful festival. <laughs> and of course, we can look at that from a perspective of kind of anthropological perspective that um, Saturnalia um, festivals, um, they get, you know, all kinds of intoxication. And uh, there's a very famous essay uh, by one anthropologist who visited Braj in, I believe it was in the 1960s, and it was the time of Holi. And, you know, he's a scholar, he's an anthropologist, so he's observing everyone, he's taking notes, you know, what do they do uh, in this festival? But the people he was staying with invited him on this day of celebrating Holi uh, to, they, they handed him a, a large cup of bang, of bang you know. Uh, bang is a heavily intoxicating drink. And he didn't know that that's what it was. So these people just told him, here, take this. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So he drank it all down. And then in his essay, he's describing his experience of holy through his own eyes in this completely intoxicated state. But then after everything, after he's come back to normal, he's also analyzing He's analyzing the situation of the fact that everyone is, you know, going crazy. So what does that mean sociologically from a perspective? So there's a kind of breakdown of order that's happening in the Rasalila, it would seem, uh, at least as indicated by the dress of the gopis. Hmm. Um, we are reminded by Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur in this short purport to verse 19. As Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti points out, it has already been explained that Lord Krishna is eternally free from all material desire, perfect on the platform of spiritual self-satisfaction. Uh, this is mentioned because in the verse we have the word Atma-Rama. 
Atmarama api lilaya. So despite his being Atmarama, self-satisfied, he's engaging in um, in ple- in this enjoyment. Reme re he enjoyed. Reme sa Bhagavang's tabir Atmaramo pi lilaya. <clears throat> okay. Now it seems that we're getting a bit of shift in mood, uh, starting with verse number 20. Seeing that the gopis were fatigued from conjugal enjoyment, my dear king, merciful Krishna lovingly wiped their faces with his comforting hand. So they've been, they've been dancing energetically perspiring, uh, everything flying and so much sound is coming from the ankle and waist bells and, and so on. Now Krishna sees that, oh, actually they're tired. Of course, Krishna is never tired, but the gopis are getting tired. Now he honors them with his smiles, so there's a kind of slowing down of the rhythm, it seems. Mm, and they are chanting his glories. Okay, who wants to read verses 22 through 20, 25? Uh, Maharaj, can I read? Oh, uh, Jalang, I'm sorry, Jalangi was going to read next, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 22. Mm-hmm. Lord Krishna's garland had been crushed during his conjugal dalliance with the gopis and colored vermilion by the kumkum powder on their breasts. To dispel the fatigue of the gopis, Krishna entered the water of the Yamuna, followed swiftly by bees who were singing like the best of the Gandharvas. He appeared like a lordly elephant, entering the water to relax in the company of his consorts. Indeed, the Lord had transgressed all worldly and Vedic morality, just as a powerful elephant might break the dikes in the paddy field. Mm. 23. My dear king, in the water, Krishna found himself being splashed on all sides by the laughing gopis, who looked at him with love, as the demigods worshipped him by showering flowers from their airplanes. The self-satisfied Lord took pleasure in playing like the king of the elephants. 24. Then the Lord strolled through a small forest on the bank of the Yamuna. This forest was filled to its limits with breezes carrying the fragrances of all the flowers growing on the land and in the water. Followed by his entourage of bees and beautiful women, Lord Krishna appeared like an intoxicated elephant with his she-elephants. 25. Although the gopis were firmly attached to Lord Krishna, whose desires are always fulfilled, the Lord was not internally affected by any mundane sex desire. Still, to perform his pastimes, the Lord took advantage of all those moonlit autumn nights, which inspire poetic descriptions of transcendental affairs. Mm. Thank you. 
Now, there's a couple of things which kind of bothered me. One is we hear, this is not the first time we're hearing about the bees. And um, please correct me, but it seems to me that bees are not active at nighttime. Um, they, they go to their hives and... I don't know, do bees sleep? But in any case, they go out during the daytime to do their collecting of pollen. Um, but we're always hearing about the bees around Krishna. Perhaps these are exceptional bees, or perhaps because uh, Krishna's presence is so attractive to the bees that despite it being nighttime still, uh, they, they're coming. That's one thing that I wonder about. And the other is that uh, Krishna and the gopis enter in the Yamuna and they have a splashing fight uh, and they enjoy in that way expressing love by splashing. They're all splashing Krishna with water and we can picture that scene. And then what happens, they, uh, they come out of the water, and it says the Lord then begins to wander through the forest on the bank of the Yamuna. Now, there's no mention that, you know, there was a servant waiting there with a towel <laughs> and a set of dry clothes. <laughs> so it seems like they're... Um, they're getting out and they're walking in completely wet clothes or they've taken their clothes off before going in the Yamuna, which I don't think we have to imagine that. Um, uh, in the short purport, uh, it said, according to Srila Vishwanachagavardi, it is implicit here that after playing in the water, Lord Krishna had his body massaged and that he then dressed himself in his favorite clothing before resuming his pastimes with the gopis. Now again, it's nighttime. If it were daytime, one could well imagine it's at least um, possible in the midday sun that one's clothes dried very quickly. And during that time, he gets a massage. But this is nighttime. So, I don't know, maybe this is explained elsewhere, but it's just a kind of question in my mind, the practicalities of this. But then again, this is my very limited and mundane perspective. And if these are transcendental pastimes, then there's no problem with wet clothes, dry clothes, bees in the day, bees at night, right? Everything's possible. Okay. All right. So essentially now we have come to the end of the description of the Rasa dance. And what remains is a theological discussion. Maharaj Parikshit raises the, the question of morality here. But it's going to be explained that 
he's not raising this question for himself, but he sees others in the audience for whom uh, they need some explanation. So uh, to his question then will come Shukadev Goswami's response, uh, and this will bring us to the end of the chapter. And I'm feeling like now could be uh, an appropriate time for us to take a break before we proceed with this final section. Is that all right? Okay. Okay, let's proceed. And um, let's go straight into verses 26, 27, 28. Just these three. Who wants to read? Maharaj, can I? Please. 26 and 27, Parikshit Maharaj said, O Brahmana, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the Lord of the Universe, has descended to this earth along with his plenary portion to destroy irreligion and re-establish religious principles. Indeed, he is the original speaker, follower and guardian of moral laws. How then would he have violated them by touching the other men's wife? Verse 28. O oh, faithful upholder of oaths, please destroy our doubts by explaining to us what purpose the self-satisfied Lord of the Edus had in mind when he behaved so contemptibly. Mm. <clears throat> Yeah, so some quite challenging questions, we might say. <laughs> uh, but why is he asking these questions? Why is he raising this issue? That is explained um, by the commentaries that Maharaj Prakshad sees that in the assembly, of course, because Maharaj Prakshad was the emperor, the fact that he was giving everything up and going to the bank of the Ganga and hearing, spending the final days of his life, naturally, all kinds of people came. Uh, certainly exalted sages were there, but it seems there were also some, he noticed, some karmis and jnanis. <laughs> and he understood they're going to be, uh, they're going to be doubtful. So they need to, for their sake, maybe they're a little shy, maybe they want to ask this, but in any case, just to clarify things, uh, we will say, 
we will raise, raise this issue. Um, but also, this is an issue which occupies a lot of people, especially since um, during, let's say, during British times in India, there was a lot of criticism. And this is something that Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur is addressing in an article, which he, a small booklet actually, he wrote a, a small book. It was, I don't know if he wrote first and then gave the speech, but he gave a speech uh, in 1869, and this can in effect, mark the beginning of his kind of explicit, active uh, preaching, in which he is addressing, he's defending the Bhagavatam, essentially. The book is called The Bhagavata, Its Philosophy, Ethics, and Theology. I believe those three are listed. And it's um, what would be called in in um, in the Christian world, it would be called an apologetic work, which means it's not saying, oh, I apologize, but an apologetic writing is a writing in which you are defending your position, uh, your theological position, uh, against critics. That is called an apologetic work. So he wrote a kind of apologetic work for the Bhagavatam. And it's a fascinating piece of writing in many respects. I've written one article on this subject. But one of the things he's addressing is this critique of Krishna as being... Uh, behaving inappropriately, amorally, and so on. Um, perhaps for next week I can dig up that article and I can read a little bit. Um, we can read something from Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Okay, uh, verses 29. No, we've done 29. Where are we? Uh I'm losing track. We read verse 30. Yes? No, I'm sorry. No, we, we read 28. Okay. So now, Shri Shuka Uvacha. Who wants to read now? We'll read 29 through... Yeah, through 31. Yes. Krishna. 29 to 31. Mm -hmm. Sukadeva Swami said, The status of powerful controllers is not harmed by any apparently audacious transgression of morality. We may say in them, for they are just like fire, which devotes everything fed into it and remains unpolluted. 30. One who is not a great controller should never imitate the behavior of ruling personalities even mentally. If out of foolishness, an ordinary person does imitate such behavior, 
he will simply destroy himself. Just as a person who is not Rudra would destroy himself if he tried to drink an ocean of poison. 31. Statements of the Lord's empowered servants are always true. And the acts they perform are exemplary when consistent with those statements. Therefore, one who is intelligent should carry out their instructions. Mm. Okay. And then there's a quite long purport uh, to, to this last, to verse 31, uh, because um, it could be, yeah, it could be misunderstood. Ishvaranam. Vacha satyam tata eva acharitam kachit tesham yat sva vacho yuktam budhimangs tat samacharit. As I understand, it's essentially saying uh, follow their instructions, don't follow their example. <clears throat> don't imitate. The example of the great Ishvaras, um, but follow Svavacha Yuktam, be connected with their uh, speech, with what they say, their instruction, what's to be done. Uh, but we may come back to this. We should come back to it, but uh, before this, um, so. We have a couple of analogies uh, in verse 29. Uh, these um, Ishvaras, the word Ishvara comes up, um, I think, yes, uh, three times in three, three verses, Ishvaranam and Anishvara. So Ishvara means controller, means master or lord specifically controller. Um, and from this word, we get the word Aishvarya. Aishvarya is the abstraction from Ishvara. Mm. So, in any case, the analogy, the first one we get, Vanehe Sarva Bhujo Yata. Um, all-devouring fire, like all-devouring fire. So these Ishvaras are compared to fire. And what is the, what is the quality of fire referred to here? It's uh, the all-devouring nature. Specifically, what are they devouring? Any kind of pollution, any kind of fault. Um, and in the purport, uh, it's explained, a fire devours all that is fed into it, but the fire does not change its nature. So the fire is not affected. It just keeps consuming whatever uh, is there as fuel. Mm. And then in the next verse, na etat, Samacharet jatu manasa api hi anishvara. Here, the anishvara, those who are not ishvaras, uh, should not 
at any time, jatu, samacharit, uh, try to um, perform, should not perform. Notice uh, that we have uh, a case of vidhi lean form of the verb. We talked about this before. This is um, when you have an injunction, a, a rule, a vidhi. And here it's in the negative case, na samacharet. Uh, you should not perform. When should you not perform? Jatu at any time, ever. Um, okay, I won't do it physically, uh, but I'll do it in my mind. No. Manasa api. Not in the mind either. Or... Um, also not in the mind. And to emphasize, manasa api he. <laughs> so it's really quite a strong... Uh, it's not a vidhi, it's a nisheda. It's, it's saying what not to do. Vinashayati acharan maudyat yata arudho abdijam visham. <clears throat> so vinashati, I think I said vinashayati, it's vinashati. Uh, he is destroyed. <clears throat> A person who tries to samachare, who tries to um, imitate vinashati, he is destroyed. Uh, acharan, doing, acting in that way. Maudyat, out of foolishness. We know the word mudha. So this is maudyat, uh, the ablative form. Out of or from or arising from foolishness. And then comes the comparison. Yatha, arudra, someone who is not arudra. Sorry, someone who is not rudra is arudra. Abdijam Visham. So we all know the story from the eighth canto. That Lord Shiva volunteers. Well, he accepted uh, the request of the devas, and uh, he presented his plan uh, to Parvati before he acted. She seems to have approved. And then he, he took the poison. Why was he able to do this? Because he is Lord Shiva, because he is a great Ishvara. But an Anishvara, who is Arudra, uh, Vinashati, will be destroyed. Now, someone might say, but it's not a very good analogy. Because it's not poison. I mean, the, the the rasa dance was rasa. It was very sweet. It was not visha. So what would you say to that? Anyone want to respond to my purva paksha? 
that there's a problem with the analogy. No one is jumping on that one. Okay, you can think about it. <laughs> okay, let's proceed. Um, we have verses 32 through... Or, um, okay, let's just do 30, 32 through 34. Who wants to read? getting late yes please it's getting late on saturday everyone's slowing down 30 32 sorry my dear prabhu when these great persons who are free from false ego act piously in this world they have no selfish motives to fulfill and even when they act in apparent contradiction to the laws of piety, they are not subject to sinful reactions. How then could the law of all created beings, animal, men, and demigods, have any connection with the piety and impiety that affect his subject creatures? Therefore, material activities never entangle the devotees of the Supreme Lord were fully satisfied by serving the dars of his lotus feet. Nor do material activities entangle those intelligent sages who have freed themselves from the bondage of all fruitive reactions by the power of yoga. So how could there be any question of bondage for the Lord himself who assumes his transcendental forms according to his own sweet will? Okay, now... Um... Okay, so the first point that's established is in verse 32, that there's, uh, there's no selfish motivation going on here. Sva'arta navidyate. There's no action for oneself. Um, kushala, uh, these persons are pious. And... <clears throat> uh, and viparya yena va, uh, even if it seems that they're doing something contrary. <clears throat> uh, anarta, we know that word, anarta, nir ahankarinam, prabhu, o, o prabhu, o master, even when they act in apparent contradiction to the laws of piety, they are not subject to sinful reactions. Why not? Because sva-arta <clears throat> na vidyate. And because they are nir-ahankara, nir-ahankarin, they are persons without false sense of self, of identity, or false ego, we say. Hmm? Um, okay, and this is elabor elaborated. Um, 
with two verses in the form of rhetorical questions. Remember, a rhetorical question is asking a question for which you don't expect the answer because the answer is obvious. The answer is, in this case, a negative. How then could the Lord of all created beings, animals, men, and demigods, have any connection with the piety and impiety that affect his subject creatures? The answer is, he could, he could not have any connection. Um, he could... Mm, Yes, he could not have any connection with the piety and impiety. Why? Because he's the source of everyone. Uh, this purport is short, so we can read this. As explained in text 32, even great personalities empowered by the Lord are free from the laws of karma. Then what to speak of the Lord himself? After all, the Lord, uh, the law of karma is created by him and is an expression of his omnipotent will. Therefore, his activities, which he performs out of his own pure goodness, are never subject to criticism by ordinary living beings. Now, something is going on here which I find useful to be aware of, and that is... It has a technical term. It's called kaimutya nyaya. Kaimutya nyaya. Um, the word kaimutya comes from kim uta, uh, which is a rhetorical question, what to speak of. And we find this repeatedly in the Bhagavatam. We find it repeatedly in Srila Prabhupada's explanations of many things. Um, And this is one example. Uh, in, in, uh, in Western language, uh, it is called an a fortiore argument. A fortiore, or a fortiori. Um, argumentum ad fortiori, or something. So the idea is, if X is the case, then how much more must be the case for Y? Why? Because Y is, more, is greater, is more powerful, has more of whatever it is that X has. So Prabhupada uses this same argument in one purport, much earlier in the Bhagavatam, talking about how it is, maybe it's in the fifth canto, how it is that the planets are all floating in space, uh, being held in space by the Lord. Uh, how is it possible? Well, he says, Prabhupada's explanation, it's very easy to understand. If Lord Ramachandra and his assistants can make stones float to make a causeway, a bridge to go from India to Lanka. Um, if they can do that, actually it's the other way around. He can, you can use it in two directions, but 
he's using it, I believe, in the direction. If he can make uh, stones float, he can also make planets float. Uh, it can be turned around and say, if he can make planets float, of course he can also make stones float. So here uh, it's being used to say, if great Ishvaras are not affected by karma, if they are like uh, Lord Rudra, Shiva, drinking poison and not being affected by it, what to speak of the Supreme Lord? Kim Uta, Kaimutya. What to speak of the Supreme Lord, who is the creator of, uh, of everything. Um, he's the creator of the law of karma, uh, and so he is not affected by it. And again, in the next verse, uh, it, it ends with a rhetorical question. So how could there be any question of bondage for the Lord himself who assumes his transcendental forms according to his own sweet will. Okay, who wants to read uh, verses 35, 36, 37, and 38? And then we just have one more verse. May I, Maharaj? Yes, please. 35. He who lives as the overseeing witness within the gopis and their husbands, and indeed within all embodied living beings, assumes forms in this world to enjoy transcendental pastimes. 36. When the Lord assumes a human-like body to show mercy to his devotees, he engages in such pastimes as will attract those who hear about them to become dedicated to him. 37. The cowherd men, bewildered by Krishna's illusory potency, thought their wives had remained home at their sides. Thus, they did not harbor any jealous feelings against him. Hmm. 38. After an entire night of Brahma had passed, Lord Krishna advised the gopis to return to their homes. Although they did not wish to do so, the Lord's beloved consorts complied with his command. Okay. 39. Now let's wait with 39. Now, a question could be raised to this final, uh, to this verse 38. It says the Lord sent them back home. In the beginning, they were saying the gopis, one of their arguments for why they should stay with Krishna is that there's no question it's not possible for them to go home. Why is it not possible? It's because uh, they have left home, which means they, they will be rejected. Um, so someone might ask, well, now Krishna's saying go back home, and they agree, although they don't want to, but still they say, okay. They, now they're agreeing to go home. Now, one could argue from the basis of verse 37 uh, that the cowherd men, bewildered by Krishna's illusory potency, thought their wives had remained home at their sides. And so there was no jealousy on their part. Um, so they're, they're completely in illusion. 
by the arrangement of yoga maya. It's quite a different sort of illusion from that of the gopis. But they seem to be, we say in English, clueless. They don't know what's going on. Um, the gopis seem to be um, by their sides. As if nothing has, ha has happened. One of the... Um, one of the comedy dramas of Shakespeare is called Much Ado About Nothing. Much ado means much goings on about nothing, about nothing significant. So from a certain perspective, we can say the entire rasa, rasa dance, rasa krida, as it's called in the beginning of this chapter, the play, the pastime of Krishna. It's nothing from a material perspective. Nothing has happened. There's nothing uh, of no, there's nothing of any consequence. From the higher perspective, it's the only thing of consequence. It's the only thing that that matters is that Krishna uh, enjoys with the gopis in the transcendental rasa dance. Uh, we are reminded in verse 38 that this is going on for an entire night uh, of Brahma. Brahma, Ratra, Upavrite, um, and so this is a matter, it's been explained, uh, it's in this purport. Mm. Oh yeah, this is explained by Srila Rupa Goswami from his Lagu Bhagavatamrita. Evam Prabhu Priyanam Cha Damnash Cha Samayasya Cha Avicintya prabhavatvat atrakinchin na durgatam. Nothing is impossible for the Lord, his dear devotees, his transcendental abode, or the time of his pastimes, for all of these entities are inconceivably powerful. It often comes up, devotees will ask questions about uh, the spiritual world. Is it the case that in the spiritual world, this or that or the other uh, is going on? And you can tell them the general principle is that everything is possible. And you can refer them to this verse from Lagu Bhagavatamrita. <laughs> Mm. Now, one further interesting, um, I would say, paradox here is in the next uh, paragraph of the purport, Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti further explains that the word Vasudevanumoditaha indicates that Lord Krishna advised the gopis, quote, to assure the success of these pastimes, you and I should keep them secret. 
And then he goes on, when the word Vasudeva is understood in this context, the word Vasudeva Namodita indicates that the presiding deity of consciousness, Vasudeva, manifested embarrassment and fear of their elders within the gopis' hearts. And therefore, it was only with great reluctance that the young girls returned home. Um, now, what about this secrecy of the rasa dance? How are we to understand? We're getting a, a report from Srila Shukadev Goswami about something which Lord Krishna is saying to the gopis should be kept secret. Uh, we wouldn't know about, we wouldn't even know that the rasa dance takes place unless we heard from Shukadeva Goswami. Is he breaching uh, the request of Krishna to keep it secret? Or what is going on? This is something to also think about. Okay, final verse. I guess I'll go ahead and read. <clears throat> and this is, I believe, one of your verses for memorization. Vikriditam Rajavadubir idam chavishno shradhan viton ushinuyat atavarna yet yaha bhaktim parang bhagavati pratilapya kamang rogam ashvapahino tyacharena dira. Anyone who faithfully hears or describes the Lord's playful affairs with the young gopis of Vrindavan will attain the Lord's pure devotional service. Thus, he will quickly become sober and conquer lust, the disease of the heart. And the purport here is also good to read. The extraordinary power of Lord Krishna's conjugal pastimes is clearly revealed here. Qualitatively, the Lord's spiritual loving pastimes are the diametric opposite of material lusty affairs. So much so that simply by hearing about the Lord's pastimes, a devotee conquers sex desire. By reading pornographic literature or hearing about material romance, we certainly do not conquer sex desire, but rather increase our lust. But hearing or reading about the Lord's conjugal affairs has exactly the opposite effect because they are of the opposite nature, being purely spiritual. Therefore, it is by the causeless mercy of Lord Krishna that he exhibits his rasa-lila, within this world. If we become attached to this narration, we will experience the bliss of spiritual love and thus reject the perverted reflection of that love, which is called lust. As nicely put by Lord Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Paramdrishtva Nivartate, once having directly experienced the Supreme, one will not return to material pleasures. 
And so ends the purports of the humble servants of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada to the 10th Canto, 33rd Chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, entitled The Rasa Dance. And so we have uh, the end of Chapter 33, and we also have the end of the Rasa Panchadhyaya, the five chapters, or as we may want to say, the five acts. The drama is over. Now, this very final verse, um, we could refer to it with a general term, kind of a technical term, uh, which is often to be found at the end of a chapter or at the end of a series of chapters. What would that term be? Yes, it is palashruti. A palashruti is a declaration of the pala, of the fruit, of having heard or read or recited uh, what, whatever it is that one has just heard or read or recited. And usually this pala, this fruit, is some sort of material fruit. Uh, but here... What is the fruit? The fruit is that one will attain the Lord's pure devotional service and thus one will quickly become sober and conquer lust, the disease of the heart. Bhaktim param bhagavati pratilabhyakam angrit rogam ashu apahinoti acherena diraha. So one becomes dira, sober, and the hrit rogam of kamam, uh, which is the desire, uh, the disease of the heart, hrit rogam, ashu, quickly, apahinoti uh, is removed. Mm. Ashu and achirena uh, with great speed, without delay, quickly and without delay. Mm. The word vikriditam uh, is used, the sporting, the play uh, of uh, the Rajavadubi. And we had in the very beginning of chapter 29 also Rasa Krida. Uh, krida can mean play. So, ultimately, we can say the whole Rasa Lila is a kind of play. And what kind of play? It is divine play. And with divine play, there is no fault. It is. Uh, because it is divine. So, Maharaj Prichit raises his question. Shugare Goswami gives several verses to answer any doubts. And then uh, we get this Palashruti at the end. Um, and so we have it. So, we want to come back and 
go back to the beginning, uh, starting, yeah, starting next Monday, and work through uh, the Rasa Lila again, but in more detail, um, with selecting verses. But also, we may we may look at some other writings. I mentioned uh, the uh, Govinda Lilamrita of um, Krishna Das Kaviraj. <clears throat> so, so like that, we can we can um, continue to absorb ourselves in these pastimes. Okay, uh, Ananda Gorachandra, Gorasundar. Uh, I have two questions. Yes. My one is question from text number 32, mm-hmm. where uh, the word no selfish motives to fulfill is mentioned. Mm. So generally, it looks like more defensive in the terms that whenever we somebody talks about Krishna or why is he doing like that, we say that no, 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 he doesn't have a desire for sense gratification. He also wants to serve the living entities. But we also know a philosophical aspect that Krishna expanded into different, different living entities and living entities are happy by serving Krishna and Krishna is happy by accepting the service. Mm-hmm. So isn't it that it's natural for Krishna to have that sort of selfish motive to make him happy and we are happy by serving him. So why do we have to defend that? No, no, no. He also has a service attitude because he's a- enjoyer by nature. And if he's enjoying, it's natural for him. For us, it is unnatural because we are supposed to be servants and we act as a uh, enjoyer. Yeah. So I want- <clears throat> yeah, it's a good point. I think the point is, uh, it's about connotation. Um, words have denotative meaning, and they also have connotation. Um, denotation is the sort of um, direct meaning, and connotation is the implied meaning. Uh, and so, when we when we say svaarta. It has, in English, when you say selfish, it suggests um, an interest which is exclusive and not inclusive. And yes, as you explained, in Krishna's case, it's different. We, we might want to say he is the one exception to the rule if if anyone other than Krishna is self-interested, then it's selfish. When it's Krishna who is self-interested, it's not selfish. <laughs> Maybe that's how we want to put it. But, um, well, what you're saying is we don't have to defend Krishna's self-interest. And I would agree, we don't have to defend his self-interest because it's in the interest of everyone. But uh, we want to make clear that his self-interest is not selfish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? Sorry? One more question. Yes. One more question can I ask? Yes. Uh, Maharaj, again, coming to the analogy of 
uh, a young boy playing with the images, his reflections. Mm. So, uh, like we understand that we are also simultaneously different and uh, similar to Krishna. And even these internal energies are simultaneously different and similar to Krishna. Uh, so, but still we find a difference that these are called internal energies and we are called uh, marginal energies. So then in that terms, when we say that Krishna is playing with his own image, it's like saying that, no, I love my own hand. But then we also find there's a difference because when the example of heat and uh, fire is given, the difference between heat and fire. So then we give the same example for the living entities also many times and even for the internal energy of the Lord like Radharani and uh, other potencies. Uh-huh. So is it exactly like saying that no, somebody is playing with himself or th- supposed to be have some difference uh, when he's even dealing with his uh, internal energies? Yeah, here I think again, as is really always the case with any analogy, uh, analogies have their limits. I explained a couple of days ago how analogies work. They go from something close, something familiar, to something distant and something abstract. But it's just the nature of analogies that um, you can only take them in a certain way. They they can serve a, a certain purpose, but if you try to stretch them, then they lose their purpose. So... Uh, Another way to say that could be that an analogy is giving a suggestion of one way to understand something which is, you know, difficult otherwise to understand. Uh, But to try to... um, uh, to try to make the analogy itself uh, the the reality that one is trying to communicate can be dangerous. So in this case of the reflection, the the child with the reflection in the mirror, one could take that analogy in a negative way practically just as easily. Uh, The negative way of taking it would be that this is about narcissism. Um, because that's exactly the classical image uh, in Greek um, in Greek narrative, Greek mythology. I think it's the 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 god-like person, the deva. Uh, what's his name? Narcissus. <laughs> he sees his reflection in water and becomes fascinated by his image and becomes kind of lost in his image. And from that, we get the notion of narcissism, the idea of being just uh, so fascinated by one's own life, one's own existence. One just thinks, I'm the best. That's narcissism. So that would be a negative application of the same analogy. What we might want to say here is that because it's it's given in the Bhagavatam, 
this analogy is a kind of the way it's applied to Krishna is it's purifying the analogy. It's recovering what might otherwise be a negative association, a negative use of the analogy. Um, again, Krishna is the exception. Uh, and so when he is in this situation, it is one of complete purity. Does that make sense? Thank you, Master. Mm -hmm. Prasad Ji. Thank you so much. Actually, Anand Gorsandar Prabhu's question reminded me of what you were saying about your uh, philosophy professor who was uh, giving a comparison, not even a comparison, his own idea, like of at one point self-love, another another point loving somebody else and what is higher. Yeah. So yeah, and like at that point also, I was also thinking the same thing. And like this, your discussion with uh, Anand Garsundar Prabhu only kind of triggered that. So mm -hmm. I was just, so my, I, like at I could understand when in this con particular context, playing with his one's own image, Obviously, uh, I, I I would say uh, my like uh, kindly correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, my idea is that uh, there will be different rules that applies uh, in the context of place because every rule is also like tempered by time, place, or circumstance. So then, the 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 factor of place coming into play hmm. when this rule is applied in spiritual domain acts quite differently as opposed to when the same rule is applied in a material domain. Which rule? Material domain, this uh, concept of loving somebody. Oh, love. okay. And your concept of loving somebody on the material plane, uh, uh, it's like basically the the, the, the socio-cultural environment where we stay, mm. that, that has a big, huge role to play and that glorifies when you love somebody else because loving oneself is considered selfish right mm -hmm. but in the in the spiritual domain because the place is changing hence the principle will have an effect on that mm. and in that sense loving his own uh, 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 image or his own reflection mm. which is like playing with his own reflection that will carry more weight in the sense that uh I mean, even in the material sense, it can be argued that, like, how is it possible uh, in 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 this case where there are like opposite sex and then really op the the principle being opposites generally attract. Mm. So, like, it is should be but natural that a boy is surrounded by three billion girls. Like, it is <laughs> impossible to think that you cannot find even one match compared to you in three million girls, three billion girls. That's it's like, beats beats all logic. So, but, and yet you are like playing with your own image. You are like kind of, that's not narcissism, I think. Okay. That's like, that has to do something with the spiritual domain. So this rule will work differently in the place. Okay. Place. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's interesting. When my professor brought up the question, he wasn't taking sides on it. He wanted to raise it as a 
topic for discussion. And, you know, he liked to sort of um, provoke uh, the students. Stimulate. Stimulate discussion. So that's what it was. He was a very nice professor. Um, one last question or comment from Ramakrishna Prabhu. This is in a point to what Nandgaur Prabhu was taking regarding the Swartha or the selfishness. Mm. So the, the, the response of Srikadeva Goswami there was basically because having understood the mood of Maharaj Parikshit, who actually was looking at those who had assembled there who were not actually devotees of Krishna, but they had their own motives why they were there. Mm. So they had this selfish interest there. And Shukadeva Goswami was trying to clarify that mm. type of self-interest, what they had and they, what they wanted to extract from this whole Rasalila is not what actually Krishna has performed. Right. So he was trying to put that point very clearly that if someone is thinking that this is what he is doing and uh, on their concocted material sense pleasure and how mm. could that be uh, as, as someone who is a god who is actually doing it, so Sukadeva Goswami wanted to say that that's not what actually the Lord is doing. Mm. And thereafter, he started to furthermore explain about the supremacy of the Lord in terms of his actions and his relations. Mm. So I, I, I understood it from that perspective that he first clarified that point there. Okay, yes, good points. And with the very last verse, what is he doing? He's being inclusive Shukadeva Goswami is being inclusive of those who are not devotees and saying everyone can be purified by hearing the Rasalila. Because we might wonder, how is it that Shukadeva Goswami is telling, uh, is describing this Rasalila in front of everyone? Uh, why didn't they send these people away first? <laughs> uh, but he doesn't. Why? That's explained in the final verse. Because everyone is purified. And on that note, I think we'll end for today. And I want to thank you all uh, for participating as you have in this first week. And, uh, and let us pray that Srila Vyasadeva and Shishukadeva Goswami will bless us to, and, and the other acharyas will be discussing to, to discuss more deeply uh, this Rasa Panchadhyaya next week. I have also, just before we go, something for you to think about, and maybe we can talk about this in the beginning of next week. Um, just suppose, just imagine that you are a tour guide in, a, in an art museum. And in the art museum, there's an exhibit, a special exhibit on the Rasalila. So there are paintings, uh, Rasalila paintings, and uh, there might be some other kinds of paraphernalia that are related. And you're a tour guide, and your job is to explain to visitors 
something, to engage them somehow or other uh, with this exhibit. And all kinds of people are coming into this exhibit. Most of them have absolutely no clue about anything. <laughs> Maybe there's some high school students uh, who are learning about so-called Hinduism. Um, you can think yourself of what kind of people you might uh, be giving a guide. So my question is, what would you tell these people? What would, or what would you tell? You can also imagine a specific uh, person that you would be speaking to. And you can also, if you like to really go into this, imagine, you don't have to imagine, you can find uh, paintings of the Rasa Lila. And you can imagine that you are explaining this one particular painting to someone. How would you do this? What would you say? So that's something you can be thinking about. Okay? So, very good. So I wish you all a very nice uh, Sunday, and we'll see you all again on Monday. And I will say, Grantaraj Shimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai. Ananta Koti Vaishnavarinda Ki Jai Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai Nitai Gora Premanande Hari Hari Bo Hare Krishna Hare Krishna Hare Krishna Hare Krishna